Welcome to the Renegade Disciple Podcast, where we use Christian theology to try to make sense of what the hell is going on in the world around us, and horror movies to try to cope with whatever the hell this is going on in the world around us. I'm your host and fellow traveler, David, semi-professional theologian and lifelong horror movie fiend. This is episode 11 for the week beginning June 11th, 2023. It's awesome that you're here joining me for this episode. There's a lot I want to get in today, and I know it's been a couple of weeks, and we'll talk about that. But first, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform, or even on multiple platforms, because all the numbers help. In a like manner, if you'd be so kind, share it to social media, tell your friends about it, blog about it, whatever it is you do to spread the word about the things you like. Finally, go ahead and give me a follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Spoutable under the Renegade Disciple name with the same cover art as the pod. And if you want to ask me anything, make any recommendations about topics or movies or shows you'd love to hear me discuss or offer any direct feedback, you can email me directly at renegadediscipodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's renegadediscipodcast at gmail.com. Now, I'm doing stuff, Lori. Thanks. What are you doing out here? I've, I've been. I've got stuff out here. So, yeah, like I said, I know it's been a minute since I put out an episode, a couple of weeks or so. I feel like the intro to the Jalen and Jacoby podcast over on ESPN. It's been a long time, and I shouldn't have left you without a dope pod to step to. But hey, that's life, right? The last couple weeks of the school year are always busy, especially with the final band concerts and final basketball club practices and awards nights and middle school graduations spread out across five kids while also trying to keep them focused until summer officially starts. And then the first week of summer has involved them all traveling to their grandparents in Virginia for a week. And I love my traveling youth group. Don't ever get it twisted. But the moving parts of doing anything like this is akin to planning a move of houses for most of y'all. And I'm also working on what will hopefully be a career transition. So yeah, things have been a little busy. And speaking of what's kept me busy, a last bit of sharing personally, uh, because it spurred some self-reflection, on top of all that other stuff, our washer and dryer went out about a month ago. And again, we're a family of seven. It's cheaper per month to finance a new set than it is to go to the laundromat for all seven of us every week. So we went, and we bought a new set. And of course, my brain still thinks that I'm in my 20s, so I'm not going to pay anything extra for delivery of the new ones and hauling away of the old ones. No, 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 I'm young and strong. I've got this, right? At least I always have before in life. And no, this isn't an I hurt myself old man story. I'm not quite there yet. Everyone's okay. I didn't hurt myself. I managed to do all of the moving of the appliances by myself. But I was very aware of how different I felt about it when I was doing it. Have y'all had these moments yet where, you know, you didn't push it too far, but you didn't like have to, having to push it anymore. That's, that's the stage of getting old that I'm at, I think. When I was a young man, Great feats of strength were always an opportunity to show off. 
anytime we would help anyone move or anything needed moved in my grandparents' house or, or anywhere else, I'd puff my chest up and have the mere mortals step aside and make short work of it. It was a source of pride and a great way to show off. Yeah, the hell with that. My 37-year-old brain has no time for that nonsense now. I moved those appliances, and sure, it was a feat of strength, but instead of doing it in a, hey y'all, watch this kind of way, I got done and I looked over at Abigail, who was the only pertinent person to witness it this time, and I said to her, don't you dare tell anyone that I can still do this. And then I went home and took a nap. And getting old is weird. But yeah, I'm back. I'm here for y'all. I've told you before that I'll never leave you for too long, I promise. Just stay subscribed and I'll pop back it up in your feed eventually. And now that we've settled into summer around here, things should be back more regular again for the next run of a few weeks at least. With all of that said, today I'd like to keep talking about the crisis of truth, knowledge, misinformation, and conspiratorial thinking that we're all mired in as a society. I'm treating this topic like the two-day-a-week college classes that I've taught, so that in the weeks to come we'll build on these lectures related to the topic until it's been fully covered. Today I'll go into some of my thoughts about the nature of human knowledge and truth. I also want to talk about a fairly significant news item from this week related to the death of someone who, for better or worse, and it's mostly for worse, has shaped the nature of public Christian discourse in America, in American culture and political life as much or more than any other figure. I still want to share some of the horror movie and show related content I've been watching lately. We had a pretty major holiday for horror past us at the end of May related to everyone's favorite OG vampire, and that gives me an opportunity to talk about one of my favorite horror subgenres. So fi and finally, as always, because you remember there was once a time when I was going to be a preacher when I grew up, and I still find myself doing this every week, even if it's, for, if it's only for myself, following the final music cue, I'll reflect on one of this week's lectionary readings of scripture. But that's enough about me and about catching up. We're going to keep moving forward with our topics on the show. We're going to keep doing this. So gather around, folks. Settle in. Get yourself a warm and cozy blanket and maybe a cup of coffee or tea. And we're going to get into the continuation of our current deep dive theme. So I keep coming around to this notion that social scientists and philosophers talk about currently on how we've slipped into what we're calling a post-truth age in our culture, uh, especially in our national discourse and in our media and in our politics. It's not only the case that people question whether or not truth exists or whether or not you can prove that what you believe in is, a, is, is true and what somebody else believes in is false, but it's, it's that the muddiness of all of that has been weaponized to personal gain. Especially, you know, in our politicians, the idea that there are alternative facts the idea of, well, that's your opinion, but all, my opinion is equally as valid. There's that quote that goes around all the time from Isaac Asimov, 
where he said there's a cult of ignorance in the United States, and there always has been. The strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. And we see that. We are living the fruits of that way of thinking. We see it with internet discourse. We see it with this lack of respect for authorities in any given realm of information, right? That I can do a quick Google search for 10 minutes and I don't know, for example, I know as much as about vaccines or more than the scientists in charge of the World Health Organization. That I'm equally as entitled to an opinion and a voice about how vaccines should be distributed or whether they should be required for people as the actual experts. I consider myself an expert too because I googled it for 10 minutes. Or I can question climate science because I did my own research on the internet. You know this idea that you did your own research without actually doing any real research, without using any real research tools that are peer-reviewed and that are bounced off of other people who can check you. We have this arrogance about us that that you can't question my beliefs. If I want to believe that the earth is flat, I'm entitled to that belief. But also, I'm entitled to impose that belief on everyone else. I'm entitled to write legislation according to my belief. Because I have my own set of facts. I have my alternative truths. And all these things we talk about, especially on this topic, it always comes back to that. And in the United States particularly, we have rejected the idea of intellectual authority for centuries. It's not a new thing. Like, like Asimov talked about, the cult of anti-intellectualism in American culture has always been there. We've always mistrusted educated elites, the people who actually know what they're talking about. There's this air of mistrust about them in American culture. When we talk about the folks in their ivory towers, we talk about the difference between common sense and book smarts, right? Between book smarts and street smarts. All of that type of language is a way to kind of knock the experts off of their pedestal a little bit, and the internet's only exasperated that. And we're moving into the age of AI, which is only more exasperating that because we're going to be flooded with more false information and with more misinformation and with more intentional disinformation, doctored photos and manipulated speeches, and, and it's going to be really hard to fight against, and it's increasingly hard to push back against and to check people on. And, and it's crazy because people are out here marching in the streets, shouting about things, about beliefs they hold, that if they wrote a paper about it in my introductory college-level courses, I'd fail them because their sources aren't good enough, their logic isn't good enough, and it's just not a justified belief to hold. But that's the rub here, right? Do we still hold to the notion that intellectual justification is a thing? And that gets us deep into what I want to talk about this week, about what is knowledge in the first place. Some people will give you a definition of knowledge as justified true belief. That's the standard definition. It goes back to 
Aristotle. It goes back to the Greek philosophers and, and whatnot. And it's fairly good justified true belief because it, it holds with it this notion of intellectual justification. And in, what intellectual justification is, is that you have a claim to knowledge, right? You claim that you believe something to be true, and it's backed up by evidence. And it's backed up by enough evidence that you can be reasonably assured that you're justified in making that claim. You, you back it up with evidence so that you can prove it. Almost think of how you argue in a court of law. You can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Thus, you're able to hold the claim, to hold the belief. Because that's what beliefs are. Beliefs are claims to knowledge about the world. Religious beliefs are claims to knowledge about God, or about the church, or about you know the spiritual aspect of reality. But all of us have beliefs about everything. Every claim to knowledge is a belief. And here's the thing. Knowledge exists on a spectrum of certainty. Right? Justification of claims to belief and knowledge. They exist on a spectrum. That spectrum goes from being totally uncertain or unsubstantiated in your claim, unjustified, it's not backed up by sufficient evidence, all the way to beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, something that gets lost when we go down this path, that I, I always try to come back around to, because I don't think we talk about this enough, I don't believe certainty is a, is a thing that's available for humans. The human brain is not capable of 100% certainty about any tenet of belief or knowledge about anything. We are not omniscient. We exist for the blink of an eye in the grand scheme of things. Even the totality of, of each other's backs that we build on from one generation to another in knowledge. It can always be better. There's always more to know. That's the basic principle of the scientific method. That there's always more to learn. We're always expanding our knowledge, and we're always growing in our knowledge and going deeper. And sometimes more evidence comes in that forces us to adjust our beliefs. Or does it? Because the crisis we face today is a crisis of people who believe that they are entitled to their beliefs that they hold. They're entitled to believe what they want to be true about the world regardless of any evidence that says otherwise. And in fact, evidence that says otherwise, they think has either been manipulated by people who want to challenge their beliefs, or is simply something that they can take and twist and misinterpret and gaslight its way into supporting whatever it is they already want to believe. This is the crisis of knowledge and misinformation, misinformation disinformation in a nutshell. We feel entitled to believe whatever we want. You're not entitled to believe whatever you want. You're not justified in believing whatever you want. Sure, you're ne none of us are ever going to 100% know something with full certainty. It means there's always more to learn, and we should always be open to changing our beliefs. But that doesn't mean there's not better knowledge and worse knowledge. Better beliefs and worse beliefs. More justified beliefs and less justified beliefs. 
This is basic knowledge 101. This is a whole branch of philosophy. I'm going to give you all a vocabulary word for this week. Your vocabulary word for this week is epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that talks about human knowledge and how's it acquired, what is it, how much can we know, what's intellectual justification, all of those things. And every last one of us should be active agents in, in the things that we know and believe, especially in a democratic society where we have the vote, where we're able to actually go out and vote for politicians and for leaders and for ideas to impose in, in our rule of law, to impose in our legal codes, that we have a say in the shaping of our republic. Well, shouldn't we shape our republic according to the shape of actual reality and not what we wish were true? Shouldn't we live in the real world, not the fantasy world that we wish we could live in? That's the task before all of us. The, the task of being a responsible adult in a democratic society is to be open to changing your beliefs according to reality. To live according to what's actually true, not according to what you've been told should be true, not according to what you want to be true, not according to what your political party says is true, and because they're the people on your team, you have to agree with them. Not according to what your preacher says is true, but according to what reality says is true. Based on evidence and facts to the best of our ability. Understanding that we never will get to 100% certainty. I always, I always mess with my students a lot talking about certainty because no, it's not available for the human mind to grasp. And, and your definition of knowledge is justified true belief. There's no such thing as an end to that process. There's no such thing as a fully justified true belief that a human holds. It's just not a thing. There's no fully justified true belief that there's no room to learn more about. If you think you know or believe something in such a certain and inflexible kind of way that you have nothing to learn more about, you've just committed blasphemy because you've just basically said that you're God and that you're omniscient. And you should repent of that and change and be open to learning. And, and I, I preach this so hard, and I teach this so often, because it comes back around to this idea that this should be a source of humility for us, right? This is something that we should just internalize and accept, because it helps us remember that we're not God, that we're not omniscient, we don't know all things there are to know, uh, we're not beyond learning new information about the things, even the things we hold most dear or care the most about. And we should never be closed to changing our stance on the things we believe as more evidence comes in. And because of that, because I know that there's nothing, there's no fact of life, even... Even my own existence, we could play little games on questioning whether or not it's actually real and if it's actually fully justified. We have to be open to change as the evidence comes in. We also have to be mindful of different kinds of evidence. And that shouldn't make us mad, and it shouldn't scare us, and it shouldn't make us say, oh, well, then we should just act as if nothing is true, and there's no way of knowing anything, so we're just flailing about helplessly and don't know what to do. 
we don't know anything 100%. And yet humans who could never possess 100% knowledge about anything were able to go from not getting off the ground in machines to flying rockets to the moon in less than 70 years. All the while with incomplete knowledge about all the mechanisms that made that work. Because we can live with our lack of certainty. And we can improve our lives with our lack of certainty. And we can do the right thing more and more and more, even though we're never 100% certain. We have to be able to acknowledge this and be honest about ourselves. And also, be honest that, that because that's how it is for me, that's also how it is for everybody else I ever encounter. That every person I ever bump into or encounter is also living with a lack of certainty. And I hope to give the benefit of the doubt doing their best with that lack of certainty. And there are some things that I believe in deeply that I'm probably wrong about. This is that, this is that thing I tell my students all the time. Every single one of us should wake up every single day and take a long, hard look in the mirror and say, some of the things that I believe most passionately in, that I have the most stringent opinions about, the things that really can get my blood flowing when, when the topic comes across, across me on, in a day-to-day -day life, some of those things I'm wrong about. So I should probably not be an asshole about it. And look, I know, y'all have been listening to me for a couple months now, so you know that I could still be an asshole about it. But I'm trying, and I try to live in that truth that I am wrong about some of the things that I believe the most deeply in, and thus I shouldn't be an ass about those things. And I should give other people the benefit of the doubt. But also, we should hold each other to the standard of being open to changing our beliefs. And looking for better justification of the things we believe. And making sure we have firm footing that approaches that beyond a reasonable doubt threshold when we're acting on our beliefs. And especially when we're judging others according to our beliefs and their beliefs. Especially when we think we have the audacity to judge someone else's lifestyle. We better have an awful lot of justification for that. And all of this, the question of truth hovers over the conversation. Is there such thing as truth? I believe there absolutely is. I believe there are singular truths about everything in the world. And I know that people will want to nuance that and offer arguments and talk about subjectivity, talk about um, the uncertainty principles that are out there, and talk about how everything you observe, you change, and la-da-da-da-da-da-da. And all of those are good discussions and productive discussions, and I like having those discussions. But I think they all come from the standpoint of our human limitedness and knowing for certain. That's a given. But just because we can't know the truths that are out there with certainty doesn't mean they aren't out there. Right? They still exist. Every, every cartoon, every meme you see that makes us mindful of the perspectives of others and, and how experience interprets what we think is true. They're all good, but, you know, take, for instance, the cartoon you see where 
people are standing on either side of a number that's painted on the street. And from where one person is standing, it's a six, and from where the other is standing, it's a nine. And one is like, it's a six, and the other is like, it's a nine. And that tells you, ah, perspective can really mean everything, and maybe there isn't an answer. Here's the problem. Somebody painted that number on the street and intended it to be a six or a nine. And whatever that was is what the number is. That might be a... That might be knowledge that's inaccessible for the people standing on either side of the number, but that doesn't mean that the number isn't a 6 or a 9. It just means we may have lost access to the truth, but the truth of what the number is still exists. There's still an objective truth about what the number is. Or the good old, you know, the good old example about different religions. I don't know if you've ever heard this one. All right, but imagine a bunch of people in a dark room, and you can't see anything. And they're all feeling around. And what they're all feeling is an elephant. But they're all feeling different parts of it. So one of them has a hold of the trunk. And they're like, oh, well, this is a snake. And another has a hold of, of a leg. And they're like, oh, it's a tree. There's a tree in this room. That's what, that's what it is we're all in this room with is a tree. And another has the tail. And they think that it's a twig or, or some, a brush, you know, with its fluffy end or whatever. And someone has an ear, and they think it's a wing of some winged cre creature. You get the idea. Someone has a tusk, and they think something. And all of them are very certain that what they have is the totality of the thing, and thus they argue with each other about what the thing is because they're all feeling different pieces of it. And they use that as an example about different religions and different religious arguments, and we all have a piece of God but we're so certain that we have the whole of God. But even in that example, like it's still an elephant in the room. The ignorance of the different individuals having only a piece of that doesn't change that objectively. It's an elephant in the room. There's an actual truth there. But I also believe our human limitedness will prevent us from fully understanding the totality of the truth that's in the room. So it's a both-and kind of answer, kind of like how all things are. But then you also have to be mindful about the people who try to exploit the uncertainty. So take the elephant in the room example again. The most nefarious kind of person might be the person who takes a hold of the uncertainty of everybody who has a different piece of the elephant and starts saying, there's no elephant in this room, or there's nothing in this room. If you all disagree on what you're holding, then clearly nobody's holding anything, or it's the opposite of what all of you think. Now come follow me, because I seem to have figured out the secret, and they exploit it for personal gain and power, which is really, really at the core of the dilemma we find ourselves in, that there's, there's actors in the world who are exploiting the natural uncertainty and ignorance among us for gain and power to muddy the waters, to turn basic uncertainty, that's just a natural, normal, perfectly fine thing to exist, and to create chaos with that uncertainty in order to gain power. And that's what you see happening right now in real time. And that's why we have to be mindful about these things in this conversation. And that's why we have to go step by step and week by week to really grasp a hold of this issue we face. But that'll be enough for this week. Listen to this a couple times. Let, let it 
chew on these ideas, really do, because they've been transformative for myself in life, and I really think this is where we have to go in this conversation. And we'll continue on next week with more. Now, let's talk about what the hell's going on in the world around us a little bit, shall we? So the big story that I want to talk about a little bit today uh, is televangelist and political activist Pat Robertson died on Thursday at the age of 93. A lot of people had a lot of visceral reactions to that news. Uh, if you're my age, I'm sure many of you, you know, he's kind of been around our entire lives there on TV. Whether you're watching whether you remember the 700 Club popping up on the channels when you were flipping through late at night, or if you are aware of the impact of the Christian coalition that he helped to found after running for president in 1988. Uh, the, the entirety of the political world we live in today, where the Christian right is wedded to the Republican Party, and Republican politicians have incorporated so much of conservative Christianity, evangelicalism, into their political platforms and into their legislation. You know, the movements to outlaw abortion in the United States and, and the influence on Supreme Court picks that we've seen happen in recent decades. Most of the culture wars we've seen fought in public in our politics and in our religion. Um, that goes back to Pat Robertson. To him and Jerry Falwell and the work they did together in the late 80s and early 90s. And Pat Robertson is guilty of saying some of the most disgusting things you've ever heard said on TV and whatnot. You know, he's the one who is blaming Hurricane Katrina and 9-11 and other disasters on the LGBTQ plus community in the early 2000s. He's the one demeaning them in public and, and damning them and convincing other Christians that their only stance towards that community can be one of hatred. He's the one demeaning women who seek their independence and who seek equal rights and who seek freedom over their bodily autonomy. That A lot of that goes back to him, and he's done a lot of harm in his life. And he's done a lot of harm while having the audacity to attach the name of Jesus to the harm he's done. And if you wanted somebody to embody all that is wrong with Christianity in America and all that, I feel should be pushed back against and should be stood up against and should be fought back against and that I feel is a break from historical, biblical, reasonable Christianity and from the ethics and love of Jesus, Pat Robertson can be the poster boy for all of that. Rightfully so. And he died this week. And, um, you know, Pat Robertson died... And there was an awful lot, awful lot of folks commenting online and in public and even in conversations letting the pain that he inflicted upon the people we all love take over the things they had to say. Um, it's always uncomfortable when somebody who's caused harm dies because it's real easy to spike the football. It's really easy to for us to kind of climb up on our high horse of moral superiority and kind of take a stance of good riddance. 
Uh, for somebody who condemned so many to hell throughout his life, you, you know, he had the kind of Christianity where God hated all of the people that he hated uh, in his mind, and he was able to hold a faith that everybody he disliked or wouldn't understand or, or thought was lesser, he could condemn to hell in his mind. Uh, lots of folks take solace in, you know, condemning him to hell when he died. And uh, talking about, you know, realizing how wrong he was and getting his comeuppance and, and his due process. And there's almost a, a sick glee in, in uh, you know, celebrating the death of a bastard. And I get that. I really do. And I know that it comes from a place of pain that he inflicted on people. And I know it comes out of the harm. And I know it often comes from the best place for those who weren't directly affected by his harmful words and beliefs, but who have watched our country be affected by them, and who have watched people we are concerned about standing up for, and people who we want to seek justice for be affected by it, it it's, it's easy to fall into that trap. But God, I tell y'all, every single time that happens, that just says a lot more about us than it says anything about Pat Robertson. It says a lot more about the bitterness and hatred we've chosen to let fester in our own hearts than it says about any justice of God. In fact, it shows us stooping down to his level and doing the thing he spent his entire life doing, of making sure that our God hates the people that we hate and punishes the people that we think deserve to be punished. It's just for us, that person is Pat Robertson, instead of the people who it was for Pat Robertson. And that just can't be the way we do it, guys. That, I'm telling y'all, that's not it. That is not it. And these are hard talks to have with each other because, you know, we're on the same side. It's really hard to call each other out, right? When we're actively, it seems like, every day fighting for survival together. But that just can't be the way we are. And it also, it's... If you're still considering yourself a Christian and you're still envisioning some form of eternal life in Christ with God that we would call heaven and, and you can't foresee a way for Pat Robertson to be there, but you're fairly self-assured that you know that you and the people you love are going to be there, the people who you think are good, quote-unquote, I'm fairly certain you've missed the boat in your theological thinking. And this comes down to it for a lot of us. This is why I firmly believe that this idea of eternal life in Christian theology, and this idea of salvation and redemption and reconciliation that the New Testament talks about, and the atonement we find in Christ with God, it is really kind of an all-or-nothing thing. The New Testament in several places allows itself to dream to the edge of saying that, but then tries to pull back. But either from a Christian framework, either Jesus saves everybody and, and salvation is effective for all, and God heals all brokenness in the entire universe, or we forever have a universe where brokenness persists where something is left unfixed and unhealed and is never made whole. 
the only logical conclusion of Christian theology is universal salvation. Now, I've been I've been walking down this road for eleven years now with with that in my mind and building on that idea uh, in seminary. My thesis was about that idea and. No matter what your argument you think prevents that from being a possibility, whether it's one about free will or whether it's one about justice, it just it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The only justice is reconciliatory, res- restorative justice, and that only comes when all of the brokenness that leads somebody like Pat Robertson to live the hateful kind of life that he lived is healed and made whole and he is reconciled with his victims who are also healed and made whole from the harm that he did and um, through a just process of rebuilding those broken relationships all is made well. That's why the New Testament talks about that God is in the process of reconciling all things back to God's self. That the entirety of this broken universe is being made whole. It's either that or it's nothing. Either it works all the way or it doesn't work. Because when I was writing my thesis, I thought of, uh, I thought a lot about, you know, we used to give arguments for the existence of God, and we can debate about their effectiveness or about whether or not that's even a good activity to engage in, because I'm kind of on the fence about it, because God doesn't need you to prove God to anybody. Uh, but one of the classic arguments coming from Anselm of Canterbury was, was the ontological argument, right? And in its classic form, it talks about um, that God is that which nothing greater exists, but to be that by definition, God must exist. Otherwise, an idea of God, who would be the greatest thing to possibly exist, that doesn't really exist, falls short of the definition for that for that idea to exist, the God of that idea must exist. And yeah, it's a play on words. But I would think about that when I thought about salvation. And I was a, I'd come back to this, to this voice in my head that would say, I shouldn't be able to imagine an eternity greater than God's eternity. I shouldn't be able to imagine this highest of all hopes that all things will be reconciled back to God's self like the Bible promises. Uh, unless that's actually going to happen, because I shouldn't be able to imagine an eternity better than God's eternity. So it's my little ontological argument about salvation. And I think, especially the Pat Robertsons, or, or extended even further, the Osama Bin Ladens, the Adolf Hitlers, the, the SS officers, the Donald Trumps of history, the, the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, the, the selfishest of the selfish the most evil you can imagine, although I'll even get into an argument with lots of y'all that it's problematic to ever conceive of another person as evil because as soon as you do that, you've dehumanized them in your brain to the point that you can justify atrocities towards them because, hey, they're evil, so it's okay to do these things to them. But whatever the worst of the worst is, like God's, God's salvation has to work for that. God's ability to heal has to be able to heal that. Because we know that those types of actions come from a place of brokenness. We know that Pat Robertson's hatred comes from a place of brokenness. Comes from confusion. Comes from what we were talking about in the deep dive, right? Of, of labeling your 
lesser belief system and your lesser justified knowledge as absolutely true with full certainty and never questioning it, never allowing it to be questioned, never being open to learning more or growing more or, or having your small boxes that you put God in be broken and, and replaced with larger conceptions of the divine. All of this ties back together. But for us, for whom we those of us who thought Pat Robertson was a blight on our national history, and he was, and he was responsible for lots of the crap we're dealing with today, if we cannot envision, if we can't first envision the possibility of God fixing that problem and bringing reconciliation between us and him and between him and the people that he caused harm, if we can't first do that, and second, if we can't hope for that, in the umbrella of the reconciliation of all things. And y'all, we're not quite there yet. We've still got some growing edges of love and conceiving of justice and reconciliation that we've got to deal with. My favorite book on this topic, the one that's, you know, sometimes you read books and, and it's the person saying the thing that's in your head that you've been struggling to articulate for so long. Uh, a theologian named Thomas Talbot has a book called The Inescapable Love of God. And among the many amazing points he makes in that book, the one that I tell everybody I ever meet and get into this conversation with, I tell every student I've ever had, I bring up to every person I ever talk about heaven, hell, salvation, and eternity with, I, I come back to Thomas Talbot's rumination about Ted Bundy's mother. About Ted Bundy's mother who loved her son and who was heartbroken. First, she, she believed that her son was innocent because he said he was, and she couldn't conceive of her son doing the things that he did. And then second, it was just crushed at the dawning realization of, oh no, he did them things. So in God's heaven, in eternity, in the vastness of this universe, is, is there hope for Ted Bundy's mother in regards to her son? Can she have hope that God will heal and save her son in eternity and present him whole and reconciled and create some kind of justice between him and his victims that honors the victims but also saves him? Can Ted Bundy's mother, could she die with some form of Christian hope about her son? Because if she can't, I don't know that heaven can ever be heaven. Heaven cannot be heaven if there, if the work of salvation worked out by God is ultimately a failure for lots of folks. And, and in the theology like Pat Robertson and others, you know, they walk around with this theology that, that God's great work of salvation is ultimately an abject failure for the vast majority of all humans who have ever lived. That, that this, they hold up this great sacrifice of Jesus and this atoning work of Jesus in their Christian theology, and yet they come back to a place where it's ultimately just a total failure. That the vast majority of all people who ever lived won't be saved. God's, God's reality is better than that. I'm convinced, and I'll bang that drum till the day I die, that God's heaven is better than that heaven. God's reality is better than that reality, and when that we are told... That our hope is the hope of the full reconciliation of all broken things. 
and the total healing of all that ails any corner of this universe. That's what it means. That all means all in this sense, more than any other sense. And for us, and on Thursday when Pat Robertson died, and a lot of folks that I side with, and a lot of folks that I stand up with and defend and root for, they, they struggled to get themselves to that highest of hope. Even as they still want to call themselves Christian and work within the bounds of Christian theology. And it was a shame. And I hope that in moments like this, when we fail to live up to the highest of hopes of our Christianity, we can, we can take those shameful moments and we can turn them into teachable moments and they can remind us to do better. To do better than the Pat Robertsons of the world. And that's what we've got to do. And that's what I hope we'll do the next time something like this happens. Because we can hope, we can dare to hope higher than we've been told that we're allowed to hope. And we can hope that all means all. And that's what it made me think about when Pat Robertson died. And when I saw the aftermath. Because, like, both things can be true. It can be true that, you know, like, fuck that guy. Because, for real, in the life you live, fuck that guy. But also, my Christian theology tells me that Pat Robertson on Thursday understood the grace of God and the love of Jesus and the glory of this universe that God created probably for the first time in his whole life. And that in that understanding, his heart of stone was replaced with a heart of flesh. And there was probably some heartbreaking ruminations on that. And there's going to be, you know, the, the coming to the truth and the realization of what all that means and the pain of if he, if he remembers how he lived his life. That alone in of itself is, is a process of healing, but that's part of the process. Part of the being made whole process. But I, I, I can't not hope that that day he finally started to get it. And I take solace in that because if God can heal Pat Robertson, then one day God can heal me too. And that's how I've got to take it. And that's how I've got to stand. Now, to livey, liven things up a little bit, although that's going to kind of be a pun once we get to the topic, don't you want to hear about some of the horror movies and shows I've been watching lately? You do? Well, let me tell you about some of the horror movies and shows that I've been watching lately. Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Do you not think that there are things which you cannot understand, and yet which are? That some people see things that others cannot? But there are things old and new, which must come not to be contemplated by men's eyes, because they know, or they think they know, some things which other men have told them. Ah, uh, it is the fault of our science that it wants to explain all. And if it explain not, then it says there is nothing to explain. That quote is from perhaps my favorite novel. Perhaps my favorite horror novel. Well, my favorite novel, period. Bram Stoker's Dracula. And on May 26th, we celebrated World Dracula Day. 
And so that's kind of what I wanted to focus on in the horror movie show section for this week's podcast. Because I used World Dracula Day to celebrate my favorite novel and my favorite movies. So many amazing movies based on that book have been made over the years. Um, when fall time rolls around and I start to amp up for spooky season and, and for Halloween, uh, I, I look forward the whole year long to starting my Universal Monster Marathon. And it always starts, of course, with the Dracula movie starring Bela Lugosi. And you talk about comfort horror. That movie, uh, Bela Lugosi's accent, the black and white, the, the backdrops, the painted backgrounds, the castle, and every from, from beginning to end, every part of that movie is, is comforting and it just singular. It is singular. I love it. And there's other great Dracula movies, right? But that's the one, like even celebrating World Dracula Day, I can't watch that movie in May because I'm waiting till fall to really start the marathon and, and jump into things with both feet. But I still wanted to celebrate, so uh, on the night of the 26th, I watched the 70s version with Christopher Lee. And while I was watching it, and I've seen it before, and I love that movie. You know, it's pretty great in its low-budget qualities. Uh, even the opening scenes when you've got obvious German shepherds running around, supposed to be wolves, and the... Every, every scene, every building is English. It's the English countryside from top to bottom. Um, but it's quirky in its ways. And, and it's Christopher freaking Lee as Dracula, you know? Christopher Lee. And it serves as a prime example that maybe that movie's become impossible to adapt. Because if you're being true to Stoker's novel and making a real adaptation, then, you know, you have to go through the same beats to start the movie. You have Jonathan Harker arriving at Castle Dracula after his long journey, and there's going to be a moment when he gets there early on if you're making a true adaptation where the wolves howl and the Count says that iconic line, Listen to them, the children of the night, what music they make. And every single one of us, no matter who is standing on the screen that we're watching right there, in our minds, we hear Bela Lugosi say that line. And it can be, you can go out of your way to be so different from the, the Bela Lugosi version that maybe folks won't notice, like Francis Ford Coppola's version with Gary Oldman, which again is a fantastic movie. Or you can do like the 70s version and bring in the greatest actor you possibly can for the role of Dracula, like Christopher fucking Lee. And immediately, at the beginning of the movie, in one of the opening scenes, you're going to have a letdown because it's not Bela's voice. It's not Bela. Bela Lugosi owns that role more than anyone owns anything in Hollywood. Except maybe Robert Englund as Freddy Krueger, because I think we've all come to the conclusion, right? Nobody else can ever be Freddy Krueger. And that's, though, the exception that proves the rule. But I still watched it. It's It's fun. Any Dracula movie is fun, and, and celebrating World Dracula Day lets us talk about vampires, right? And the horror movie genre, does it really exist without vampires? And speaking of 
Dracula, um, after watching the 70s version in bed, I finally got to watch Renfield that Friday night with Abigail. I've been looking forward to watching Renfield ever since I saw the first trailers. I mean, yeah, you can't be Bela, but man, you also can't be Nicolas Cage just, just going off the walls and being Nicolas Cage as Dracula, right? And so we watched Renfield, and, and there were things about that movie that I, I loved, I adored. Obviously, the black and white flashbacks to the Bela Lugosi Universal Dracula movie where they just swapped out the faces for Nicolas Cage and Nicolas Holt as Renfield. Those were amazing. The, the telling of the story, that was... It was a great concept of, like, you know, how does Renfield pick up the pieces every time Dracula's master plan fails and, and have to keep him moving from place to place until he regains his energy. And also the conflicted nature of Renfield's existence and that he doesn't want to kill innocents, but Dracula is demanding innocent blood because it helps him get stronger as, you know, the evil vampire that he is. Uh, Renfield tries to kind of be Dexter as the vampire's assistant and that he can justify bringing people who he thinks deserve to die to Dracula. Uh, and, and there were so many Easter eggs, right, throughout the entire movie. Uh, our whole relationship, Abigail and I, will do the Renfield laugh to each other. You know what I'm talking about. In the universal, old black and white Dracula movie, there's that scene where they find Renfield on the shipwreck, and he's going, <laughs> You know the Renfield laugh. She knows it from Dracula Dead and Loving It, the Leslie Nielsen spoof, because she grew up watching that and she loves it. I love that movie too, but it, it's our funny thing we do. Uh, back and forth, and if you pay attention in, in the movie Renfield, that's how Renfield laughs, and as soon as he started to laugh that way, we were, we were sucked right in. The whole start of it, the setup, really brought us in. Now, the movie does kind of drag towards the end. It does this thing that modern action movies and sci-fi movies and even the best of the modern movies, they do where you could have ended this thing three endings ago, right? It's like every movie has the, the Return of the King problem at the end, where we're, we spend a good final third of this film ending it multiple times. And every time you think it's ending, oh, no, there's, there's a, another storyline, or there's another fight, or, or there's this other thing that we have to do before we can actually end it. And that can start to drag a little bit, especially when it sets itself up as so hilarious uh, it's a movie that's really funny and spoofs some things about the classic story, but the movie itself is not a spoof, and it's actually trying to be serious and trying to be an action movie. Uh, it's a movie with evil dead levels of gore that are fantastic, right? There, there is <laughs> there's a part towards the end where Renfield is using people's severed limbs as nunchucks, and blood is splattering everywhere, and it feels like an Evil Dead movie, but it's trying to play it straighter than Evil Dead movies play it. And that, it's an odd mix-match of tonality when it does that. So those were things. You know, it, it was a mixed bag, I'll even admit it, even though I liked it and I'd probably watch it again. Uh, again, more about the Easter eggs I caught when I was watching it. There's the character Teddy Lobo, the, the cocaine dealer. 
And if you paid attention to the bricks of cocaine that the police got from him, uh, they had little wolves on them. Like, that was their symbol. And uh, there's, if you're a fan of Underworld, you know, in literature and pop culture and on film, the, the conflict between vampires and werewolves, even in the old Universal movies, right? The conflict between Dracula and Larry Talbot, the wolfman. It goes back far. Uh, so that was that was cool. Talking about the, the mixed tonality, Abigail said that it was like the Matrix meets Robin Hood men in tights. And in the fight scenes especially, that was a real good way to describe it. She's pretty good at coming up with stuff like that. The mob boss was named Bella. And we were thinking of Twilight when we heard that, so that was pretty cool. Or a pretty good Easter egg. When it was trying to be serious and they were trying to delve into with the, the therapy support group and talk about Dracula's narcissism and the codependent relationship between him and Ringfield that underlies the story. Like, you see what they're trying to do there? And most of it's really good, but it also doesn't quite get all the way there. Or, or at least it's such mixed with... You know, just the way Nicolas Cage is playing Dracula, because he's Nicolas Cage playing Dracula. And he's playing Dracula how you would want Nicolas Cage to play Dracula. It doesn't quite fit with the serious aspects of the film. I'll give it that. They made a protection circle of cocaine, which, you know, we watched Cocaine Bear not that long ago, so that was still on my mind. Uh, Hollywood's really into cocaine on film these days. I guess if you're doing the taboo thing less often in real life, you're dreaming about it on film <laughs> a lot more is what it seems like they're doing. You know, there's the line in the film, my life is like a never-ending hallway of funhouse mirrors, but all the clowns are me. That is a very deep line for a movie that you went into thought, thinking it was going to be a spoof. All in all, it was a perfect thing to watch during the week that includes International Dracula Day. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. I'd recommend y'all check it out at least once. Uh, I'm not going to give it five stars. I'm not going to say it's a masterpiece. But, like, I don't know if you felt the same way most movies I watch these days. We watched it, and it was a thing. And it was alright. It was worth the watch. The final thing that I wanted to throw out there for all my millennial listeners and friends is uh, the, the credits roll at the end and they play this, this song I'm free you know I'm free to do what I want any old time and I remember that song it, it, it touched a visceral memory with me because it was on the trailer for a movie called Step Kids and we know that trailer, or at least I know that trailer for that movie called Step Kids, because it was the trailer that showed right after a commercial for the Burger King Cool Kids Club on the original VHS version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Part 2, The Secret of the Ooze. You know, the best Ninja Turtle movie ever made. And I for sure had that VHS, like, as soon as it came out. And I, for sure, watched that movie, like, every single day for a solid three to five years when I was a kid. And so I would see that trailer and hear that song all the time. So when it popped up in the credits for Renfield, that, too, was really cool. But, yeah, that's that's the horror movie 
that we watched and delved into. Like I said, the whole theme lets me talk about vampires. And when I talk about vampires and I think about theology, there is a lot that we can mine right there, right? Because it's all built on this idea of immortality. Um, vampire mythology is built on the same curiosity that humans have about maybe existing beyond natural death that eschatology is built on, that our pictures of heaven, like we were talking about earlier, are built on. Uh, and in Dracula, vampire lore, right? Even the source of their immortality, the it's a twisted version of the sacrament of communion or, or the Eucharist, especially in the, in the Catholic way of conceiving of it, right? The vampires live because they eat the flesh and drink the blood of others. Just like a twisted version of the sacrament could be seen as saying eternal life in Christian theology you get from partaking in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. But that's always an interesting thing you can tie together when you think about vampires. I also think about vampires because vampiric immortality, right, it's... Uh, it's like monkey's paw immortality. It's like you wished for immortality on a monkey's paw. And your wish was granted, but there were heavy strings attached, and it was in a twisted way where it, was, it actually turns out to be a nightmare. That, that's the immortality that vampires get. And, and we see that as a trope throughout vampire literature and film and popular culture, right? Uh, if you think about Interview with the Vampire, the, the whole trope of the tortured, solitary, alone vampire for whom this, this eternal life is something of a curse. Uh, we think about it in, with Blade in Marvel Comics and in the movies. You even think about it with Twilight, right? With these vampires who don't want to kill humans and thus are like vegetarian vampires, but struggle with their thirst. And we can even go all the way back to Dracula with subtle hints of the tortured immortality, right? Can you hear Bela's Dracula in your head uh, at, at the play they went to see, talking about uh, to die, to be really dead, how glorious that must be. Or when pushed, there are far worse things waiting man than death. This twisted form of immortality, because it's a lonely, solitary individual cursed immortality because even eternal life can actually be a curse if you're alone if you don't have others if you have to watch all of those who you loved die and then maybe you try to grow to love new people but then they all get old and die as well we actually can't have eternal life without each other without the people we love and without community kind of goes back to what I was talking about with Pat Robertson doesn't it that eternal life necessitates that we have each other there. That there's community. Humans are before anything else and above everything else social creatures. We're defined by our relationality and our relationships and our love. And so living forever in solitude without relationships and without love and losing all of those connections, it's actually more of a vision of a hellish thing than a heavenly thing. So that's something to chew on when we think about vampires and we think about Dracula and we think about eternal life and when we think about heaven. It's a great intersection 
of horror and theology, and one that the news of the world from this week really brought to the forefront in numerous ways. And these are, these are the things that I, I made this podcast to be able to talk about, right? And so I hope that I've been able to try and tie some things together with these topics and their timely nature. And I really, I really like the way that that hits, so I think I'll leave it there. Um, as always, after the music cube, there'll be a short reflection on the lectionary readings from this week, on one of them anyways, uh, that you are free to stay and listen to. And if that's not your cup of tea, you're free to stop it here. Regardless, I am just thrilled that you listened to my podcast, that you gave me a play, that you're giving me some follows. Uh, just remember to hit that like button and to hit that share button and give a five-star review and to subscribe and to keep coming back and we'll keep doing this, and I commit to keep trying to tie things together better, to, to find good themes to talk about, and to just create a community here at the Renegade Disciple Podcast. And I'm just appreciative of each and every one of you who give me a listen every time I put something out, and I th can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart. God bless y'all. Again, this is Sunday, June 11th, 2023. In the Christian calendar, we are now in the midst of ordinary time, the season after Pentecost that carries us all the way until November 26th this year. The high holy days of the Christian calendar are over. We are through Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Eastertide and Pentecost. So buckle in. We will spend the rest of the year making the ordinary extraordinary. Our reading this morning comes from the ninth chapter of Matthew, verses 9 to 13 and verses 18 to 26. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put aside, he went in, and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. 
and the report of this spread throughout the district. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I find it really fitting that given the topics we discussed earlier in the whole podcast, and that we're sitting here in the middle of June, in the middle of Pride Month, and we have this reading, right, that talks about Jesus teaching, first teaching, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and of Jesus intentionally violating the barriers of righteousness of his day, right? Violating the barriers and the rules of cleanliness that have been constructed by the Torah itself, by the scriptures, and enforced by the leaders of the religious communities of the day, violating them time and time and time again out of mercy. That love goes beyond whatever has been declared clean or unclean. That God calls all of those, even the ones that you have turned away from, even the ones that you have put outside, even the outcasts, especially the outcasts. All of that stuff about I have come to call the sick, not the well, the well are in no need of a doctor, that I've come to be with sinners, not the righteous, the righteous don't need me. <clears throat> that means those who consider themselves righteous, who consider themselves well, are away from the fellowship of Jesus, are not at the table with Jesus, are not the ones he seeks out in the crowds and enjoys fellowship with and sits down with but rather those who they look down on. Which means Jesus is not with them, right? And that, that stands out. And it also stands out, right, you think about the ideas of clean and unclean in that culture. And how big of a deal it is to, to maintain cleanliness and to not violate the laws. And things that were considered clean and things that were considered unclean, right? Uh, you don't come into contact with anyone who has a hemorrhage, a flow of blood, or you'll become unclean because they're unclean. You don't touch a dead body, or else you'll become unclean because they're unclean. Tax collectors were viewed as, as traitors, as those who had sought to cooperate with their imperial oppressors, Rome, and even make money off of their Jewish countrymen. They were traitors to Israel. They were outcast. To associate with them was to make yourself unclean. And Jesus breaks those rules every time. Even if the word of God calls something unclean, the love of Jesus violates that rule to touch it and heal it and bring it into the fold. Because God desires mercy, not sacrifice. You could follow all the religious rules to the T. You could, you could live a perfect life in your eyes. A perfect life according to the book. If you don't have mercy, it means nothing. right? It's like Paul in 1 Corinthians. If I, if I could do all of these things in the name of God, and if I do not have love, I am nothing, and it means nothing. And it is for nothing, and it accomplishes nothing. I think about all these those things when I think about this passage. And ultimately I think about just the concept that love wins and love is bigger than rules and love is bigger than who's in and who's out and love is bigger than categories of clean and unclean, of sinful and righteous. Love transcends all of the, those things and binds together 
that which has been broken asunder and heals the wounds that the categories have caused. And I think that is a great thing to consider as we're in the midst of pride. I said it was going to be a short reflection, and, and that's what I'd like to reflect on. I do have a couple more things I want to share, though. In church this morning, to go along with the passage, we sang a hymn. And, and in our hymnal and the disciples, we use what we call the Chalice Hymnal. That's produced for the denomination by the denomination. Uh, so in our hymnal, it's hymn number 464, God of Grace and God of Glory. And we sang this, and, and I thought to myself how theologically deep and good the words of this hymn were. Uh, and I thought I'd just read them. I'm not going to sing them, because that is, that is not my M.O. But I did want to share the words. So, hymn 464 in the Chalice Hymnal, God of Grace and God of Glory. God of Grace and God of Glory. On thy people pour thy power, crown thine ancient church's story, bring its bud to glorious flower. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, for the facing of this hour, for the facing of this hour. Lo, the hosts of evil round us scorn thy Christ, assail thy ways. From the fears that long have bound us, free our hearts to faith and praise. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the living of these days, for the living of these days. Cure thy children's warring madness, bend our pride to thy control, shame our wanton selfish gladness, rich in things and poor in soul. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, lest we miss thy righteous goal, lest we miss thy righteous goal. Set our feet on lofty places. Fill our lives that we may be strengthened with all Christ-like graces. Pledged to set all captives free. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, lest we fail our call to thee. Lest we fail our call to thee. Save us from weak re resignation to the evils we deplore. Let the search for thy salvation be our glory evermore. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, serving thee whom we adore. Serving thee whom we adore. I don't know about y'all, but uh, that hymn teaches. That hymn articulates deep theology. You know, a lot more than some of the repetitious Hillsong worship songs that we sing, right? And it was written by Harry Emerson Fostick in 1930, and that's another reason that it stuck out, because Harry Emerson Fostick preached one of the greatest sermons of the 20th century, and it's one that is actually going to come to play here in the podcast in coming weeks uh, as we continue to discuss our deep dive topic. In the sermon from the early 20th century, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? It's readily available on, on YouTube, so online, if you Google it. There might be a rendition on YouTube, but probably not Harry Emerson Fostick from the early 1900s. <laughs> but go Google it and find the text. Read his sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Because it's astounding how it's still relevant 
a hundred years later. How it brings up the issues we're talking about in the deep dive this month and throughout these weeks, and how it reflects the tension that still sits in our culture today, that lays behind our culture wars that somebody like Pat Robertson was at the forefront of. And I just find it really interesting. Uh, and, and the hymn stuck out to me. Finally, will you pray with me? Lord God, our Maker, the work of your hands displays your goodness and glory. It is marvelous to behold. From the most intricate snowflake to the grandest of mountain peaks, with each inbreaking of the sun's rays that paint the sky until day's end, your limitless love creates it all. As we gaze then upon your children, the special co-creators you have made to experience you and your beauty, may we always appreciate the dignity of each person, straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. May we witness your extravagant artistry of each beloved, celebrate your divine imprint upon each heart, and recognize how you fashion each human being with purpose and wonder. Your limitless love creates us all. Forgive us, Lord, for the constraint of our eyes that fails to take in another's beauty, for choosing the comfort of our own apathy instead of bearing one another's burdens, for not remaining silent to listen and silent when we should have cried out. Your limitless love forgives us all. We pray, O oh God, for the wounds the world inflicts, and thought, word, and deed, against what your hands have made and ultimately against you. Soothe and comfort, renew and redeem. Your limitless love restores us all. We pray for unity, for tenderness, for belonging and justice and freedom, for solidarity and bountiful compassion, that the world may know who you are by the way we love one another and how willing we are to enter the splendor of co-creating with one another and with you. Your limitless love heals us all. And in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we forever pray. Amen.